Good morning, everybody. A little feedback. I heard it. And hello to everybody online. And uh, Harold's back there going, that's why we wanted to do a mic check on you beforehand. <laughs> All right. So um, we, and dads, uh, happy Father's Day to dads. And uh, John said that the, the clapping for them, for dads, was not very good. I'm going to give you another chance or nobody gets ice cream. <laughs> All right, let's go. All right, we're in the third week of our series on Second Peter, and it's called Dying Words because Peter says, we're going to see this next week in the passage next week, I'm not long for this world. And so one of the things that we can ask as we keep reading through Second Peter is why these words? These are your last words. Why, why these words? And today's passage is about our eternal destiny. What's going to happen for all of eternity, for each one of us? And Peter is concerned that there are people in the congregations he's writing to who profess to be Christians, but they're not. And so he talks to them about how, to, how do you confirm in your own heart and mind that you really are a follower of Jesus. So everything really is at stake in this passage. This is a passage about the ultimate stakes, uh, e- eternal stakes. So I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1. It's way at the end of your Bibles. If you grab one of the Bibles from the seat rack in front of you, it's on page 1,225 in those Bibles. Fortunately, we can read the Bible, understand it, doesn't have to be a mystery to us. And so that's what we're going to be doing now. I'm going to pray, uh, prayer based on Romans chapter 10, as we pray for the Holy Spirit to illuminate his word for us. So please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the ways that you speak to us and reveal yourself to us through your word. We come expectant for you to speak. By the power of the Holy Spirit, prepare our hearts to hear. Illuminate your word so that we might understand. Help us to receive your truth and lead us to respond for your kingdom and for your glory. Father, since tomorrow is a day to commemorate and remember and celebrate the Emancipation Proclamation, we take time right now to recognize and repent of all the ways that that proclamation still needs to take hold in our country, in our institutions, and in our hearts. We also pray with thanksgiving for the progress that has been made toward racial justice in our country, even in many of our hearts. We celebrate that, and we pray, Father, for liberation for all those who even today are trapped in slavery and forced labor all around the world. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, follow along as one of our five ochres reads the scripture to us. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them, You may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. 
For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness mutual affection and to mutual affection love for if you possess these qualities in increasing measures they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of the lord jesus christ but whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. All right, so we're going to come at this passage in a little bit of an unusual way. We're going to start at the very end and work our way back. So Peter makes his intentions clear at the very end. The first two, the, the early parts of it uh, lead up to uh, that conclusion. Uh, but before we, we do that, I want, to, I want to ask you a question. Have you, ever, have you ever, in anger, in frustration, hastily written and sent an email or a text. Don't raise your hands. You don't need to do that. I know you all have, or almost all of you, uh, except those of you who are not on email or text, I suppose. Um, yeah, it, it, it happens. And I can't think of any time where I have done that, and the reply has been, you're right. I am the idiot you made me out to be in your email. And so thank you, and let's have coffee. Just, it doesn't happen. And part of the problem is just how easy it is to do it, right? I mean, because of the internet, because of how quick things are, you can write something down and send it out, and it's very, very immediate. But in, in New Testament times, when Peter was writing this letter, uh, it wasn't that way. There was no internet. There was no postal service for regular people. Unless you were a really rich person who just had people around you, servants around you, and you could just say, hey, write this down and then take it. You know, that would be the equivalent of that sort of thing. But normal people didn't have that. You didn't have big pens. You didn't have pads of paper. You just go grab a pad of paper and write this out and, you know, and send it. Nothing like that at all. So the whole process was slowed down. It was even slowed down more by the fact that people really paid attention to certain writing conventions, certain things that you do. Now, a writing convention is like put the date at the top and dear so-and-so and kind of like, hey, I hope everything is going well for you. Hope you're having a good summer. Those kinds of things that we often, when writing letters, when we used to write letters, we would do, uh, still do sometimes in email if you haven't talked to somebody in a while. They had all those writing conventions that, again, slowed everything down. So it gave you a chance to cool down if you were frustrated, if you were writing in frustration, if you were writing in anger. It gave you a chance to think about your words and how they would be heard. So when Peter, at the very outset of his letter, skips one of those major conventions, which is a section about thanksgiving or gratitude, uh, it's meant to get people's intent, uh, attention. And instead, what he offers is what scholars just pretty much say is a sermon. He gives a sermon. It has three points, 
and it's filled with passion and urgency. And so as we look at the content of this sermon, we're going to see a, that our eternal destiny is at stake, Peter is saying. So scholars note that Peter skips some of these conventions. Uh, he not only skips the conventions, experts in writing analysis, rhetorical analysis, say he actually shifts from, in the first couple of verses, a written form of communication to more of a spoken form of communication. So what's the sermon about? The sermon about is the, ser- the ultimate point of the sermon comes at the very end. And as I said, the first two points build up to it. So that's where we're going to start in verse 10. Look at First Peter chapter 1 and verse 10. We've heard the whole sermon already. Now we're going to work our way back. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, Peter's concern is that some of them are not going to be welcomed into what he calls the eternal kingdom of the Lord, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, which, by the way, is an unusual way of talking about salvation and eternal life. Uh, you won't find it anywhere else in the Bible, uh, but it's talking about that whole new creation, which he gets to again later in the book. But the bottom line is that he's concerned about their eternal well-being, and he calls on them to make every effort, he says, to do these things. He says, do certain things. And in doing these things, you're going to confirm your election and your calling, which means they need, basically what he's saying is, you need to be sure that if you think you're indeed a Christian, you're a Christian, you need to make sure that you are indeed a a Christian. So what are the things that he says you need to make every effort to do. Well, those things are, are delineated in the second point of the sermon. All right, so we've got 10 through 11, which says, make every effort to do these things to confirm your calling. What are those things? Beginning in verse 5, it says, for this reason, make every effort, there it is again, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. Those are the things. Now, this is kind of a, in, in a sense, it's a recipe here for spiritual growth, looking at it from a particular angle. And the, the angle that it's looking at it from is the angle of character formation, uh, virtues that we need in our lives. But what kind of a recipe is it? Um, I don't cook very much, so sometimes, but sometimes I do, and Lois either leaves a recipe that she uses or a recipe that she's found online, and she says, just follow this recipe. And because I don't cook very much, it it's, happens more often than it should, but I'll look at the ingredients. That's where I'll go, right to the ingredients. I won't look at the steps. I'll look at the ingredients, and I'll throw them all together <laughs> and throw them in. All right, people who cook are already having fun with this one. And then it doesn't look right, and I go back and I read the instructions, and, and sure enough, you know, there's a certain order that it was supposed to be done in. 
Now, the reality is there are some recipes where it says put this in and this in and this in, but the order really doesn't matter. And usually, if you cook very much, you know the times when it does matter, and you know the times when it doesn't matter. Um, and, and a lot of times, the recipe will help you understand whether it matters or not, if you would just read it. So, most scholars believe that this recipe here, to add this and then add this and add this, is not the kind that has to do with the order. There's no logical sense to the order of things in this particular list. And they say these kinds of lists are common in the Greek philosophers, they're common in the New Testament. Sometimes the order is important, sometimes they're not. This is a case when they're not. On the other hand, most scholars agree that, second, uh, uh, that starting with faith and ending with love is significant. Because our Christian life begins when we put our faith in Christ alone. And the crowning virtue of Christianity, the, the goal is love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. All right? That's the most important commandment, right? And love your neighbor as yourself. So, so there, it's hard to imagine that Peter didn't have that in mind as the bookends of this recipe. But when it says add to faith, it should raise your, like, what? <laughs> add to faith. Because we have a book in the Bible, at least one, uh, Galatians, a letter from the Apostle Paul, that says you can't add anything to faith. You can't, if you try to add to faith, you're going to come out with something that's, that's, uh, that's not good. It's going to destroy faith and grace and all of that. Um, so picking up on what Paul wrote in Galatians and Romans, what you see as the overall trajectory of all of Scripture, the Protestant Reformation came up with a phrase uh, after saying, you can't add anything to faith, came up with a phrase, it's, it's formulated in different ways by different reformers, but the phrase is, we are saved by faith alone, but faith that saves is never alone. So, Peter here is basically talking about the faith that saves is never alone. He's not saying you need to add this like these are ingredients that, that, that make faith better. It's, it's actually the outgrowth of faith. We need to put, um, we, we need to be in pursuit of goodness and knowledge and self-control and perseverance and godliness and mutual affection and love because without these, we're really, we're really in trouble uh, in our faith. Our faith is going to be incomplete. It's not going to be complete saving faith. Our faith without those things would not be saving faith. So in the sermon application guide, I give some definitions of each one of those terms and give you an opportunity to reflect on that um, and encourage you to, to do that at some point this week. So what kinds of things does Peter say we need to do to be welcomed into his eternal kingdom? Basically, we need to cultivate, we need to practice uh, eight virtues, these virtues listed in verses 5 through 7, so that they're increasingly evident in our lives, and they confirm that we are indeed, and that's the word that he uses, that we, it confirms that we have indeed been made right with God through Christ, 
He's saying, grow in your character in virtue. And then he adds this. Look at verse 8. If you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord um, Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have these is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. All right, so it's really important to notice that we're talking about something that grows. Character and virtue grow. Character and virtue grow. They don't appear instantly. They don't appear automatically in our lives. These are, these are traits we possess, as Peter says, in increasing measure. The result again, according to the third point that he makes in the sermon, is that we're going to be welcomed into Christ's eternal kingdom. Now, at this point, three things stand out to me in a, in a, in a big way uh, from the sermon so far. Our eternal destiny is at stake. That's what Peter's saying. Our eternal destiny at st- is at stake. And the, the question we need to ask ourselves is, do we believe that our eternal destiny is at stake? Or do we just kind of think, well, it's all okay because of this, this, and this? Do we sense the urgency that Peter has? A second thing is that spiritual formation ought to be urgent and passionate pursuit in our lives. It should be a passionate pursuit in our lives. Now, it shouldn't be a passionate pursuit in, and and please don't do this with this, like here's this list and you can maybe make a graph and say, how am I increasing in this? And you kind of try to keep track of that and that there's this magic point in this list where I cross from being lost and separated from God into being a Christian, that it's not what it is, okay? That's not what it is. Uh, it, it, it is whether it is even happening in our lives, whether, whether I'm even trying to grow in these things, whether there's evidence in my life that Christ actually means something to me and that he has restored me and that I, he has renewed me uh, and, and that he is redeeming me and that he has reconciled my relationship with him. So it ought to be an urgent and passionate pursuit in our lives. So we need to ask the question, is it, is it actually in my life something that I am pursuing with all my heart? And the third thing that stands out to me is a personal question. How much am I distracted from the pursuit of spiritual formation by lesser things? It might be good to actually ask yourself, what are are some of those lesser things? There's a question in your sermon application guide that helps you do that. So we're working our way backward through the points of the sermon. We start with Peter's main concern, and then we see how he says that we have to do certain things to confirm our faith. Um, And so uh, uh, now we go to point one. And to go to point one, first of all, notice verse five, where it started out. For this reason, make every effort. For what reason? For this very reason. What reason? That's what you get in verses three through four. So look at verse three. His divine power 
has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these, we, He has given us His very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. So, here's a summary of the sermon. Excuse me. <clears throat> Eternal life is at stake, and spiritual or character formation uh, uh, that keeps our faith intact until the end and assures us is important in our life. That's point two. But we have to understand it's all made possible by God. All made possible by God in his glory and in his goodness towards us, and it's expressed in his promises. And really his promises that uh, are the subject matter is his promises to reconcile us, make us right with him, his promises to redeem us, to buy us back from this evil world and the evilness that's within us. Now, before we move on, um, one more thing. What does it mean to participate in his divine nature? I'm going to come back to this later, and I need to gain some time for my sermon uh, after last night. Um, and so I'm just going to go right, cut right to the chase, because uh, it sounds very new agey. It, it sounds, uh, to us, it sounded very Greek philosophy, Greek. I mean, the Greeks believed that when they died, they would be, most, most of the philosophies, most of the religions believe that you would be absorbed into the divine. And this sounds that way. But that would go against the whole Bible, <laughs> uh, the whole flow of the Bible. It's very unlikely that, that Peter is going against the flow of the whole Bible, of his, even his faith as a Jew, now as a Jew who believes in Jesus. It's very unlikely. That the problem, the problem, it starts, it's warned about in Genesis 2, it comes to fruition in Genesis 3, is that we are trying to become gods. That's the problem through the whole Bible, that the whole Bible is trying to, 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 to fix, is that that's what we pursue. And so uh, he's not going to turn around and say, well, it's never the problem. We always should have been trying to become gods. Uh, we are God's image bearers. So what does it mean? Douglas Moo, commentator, says, to participate in the divine nature is a very vivid way of reminding believers that they have the Holy Spirit residing in their hearts. And that they, they can therefore begin to manifest some of these qualities that are characteristic of God himself, holiness and love and compassion, godliness. All right, so that's got to be what Peter is talking about, the Holy Spirit, that we participate in God in that way. We do not become personally divine. So that's the mini-sermon. It packs a mega message. So I want to cover a couple of things. Um, particularly, I want to go back to verses 3 through 4 for a few moments. Uh, because it makes a very important theological point. And I'm not going to go so far into the theological point, but I want to go into the heart point that it makes. So our salvation is made possible by what God has done through Christ, only by what God has done on our behalf through Christ. Uh, coming out of the Reformation, there were five statements, um, five terms that were used to describe how God is at the center of our salvation, and it's by His power alone, His grace alone. And so they were called the, the five solas, which in 
uh, Latin means alone. And so the five solas, uh, are, actually it's in your outlines, is grace alone. We're saved by grace alone. We're saved by faith alone. We're saved by Christ alone. We're saved to the glory of God alone. All of those, if you want to spend some really interesting time, you can go through the first four verses and they're all there in the first four verses of Second Peter. Um, the only one that's, that's missing is the centrality of Scripture alone. And so that comes later in the chapter, actually. He actually gets to that. It's very interesting how that first chapter uh, summarizes all of those. But there's something equally important here for our hearts, something that increases our passion and our heart devotion. Because we need engaged hearts because spiritual formation isn't easy. It's not easy at all. Distractions, there are many. Just, just take any of the virtues that are listed there, and you, you'll see what I mean. Self-control. Is that easy for anybody? Self-control. I mean, we live in a world where, like, losing control is a virtue. And we don't need the world to go in that direction because inside of us there is so much that we're fighting against for self-control. One of the other ones is mutual affection. Look around. Some of these people around you are hard to love. Stop looking at me. You're, you're looking at me. I said, look around. Look around. And, and godliness. Godliness, right? Is that an easy one? Godliness. You know, like, I eat, I eat godliness for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It's easy. No, it's, it's not. It's not easy. So how can we maintain a passionate, the kind of thing that Peter is talking about? This is the thing that struck me as I was working on this sermon is, wow, there, there is a force, a passion here that is too often lacking from my life. So how can, how can I maintain a passionate and focused pursuit of spiritual formation, especially when the reward, the kingdom of, of, of God coming in its fullness is way, way out there in the eternal future? What does this kind of devotion come from? Because quite frankly, my passions are oftentimes with things that are right in front of me. It's like... Um, my next pickleball game, <laughs> or planning a bike ride with Lois, uh, or uh, a time I'm going to have with some friends uh, or family around a fire in the evening. I'm thinking about that. I'm, my, you know, I'm, I'm gearing up for that. I'm, I'm so excited about that. So how do I keep good things even, good things like these, not to mention evil desires, from dominating my life and kind of dominating over a passionate pursuit of spiritual formation. And so uh, that's where awe, full, gratitude and wonder comes in. Because what if the reason good pleasures or less benevolent pleasures in our lives can dominate my passions, what if it's because I've lost the awe and wonder of God? and of His grace, and I don't experience a deep gratitude for God's love and for what He's done for me. I can read verses 3 and 4, and just, it doesn't do very much. I get to verses 5 through 7, and I'm kind of like, what a failure I am. I just, don't, I just don't do this. And I get to the last part, and I'm like, well, I know I'm saved because I prayed for Jesus to forgive me of my sins. What if that characterizes a lot of my daily life? So, I just want to spend a few moments 
on how to cultivate this awful gratitude and wonder. Because I think we can. I think it can be cultivated in our lives. I think we have a part uh, in it. Um, So the first part is a word that, if it doesn't work for you, find a better one. I couldn't. (laughs) All right, but it's the word renouncement. And I really wrestled with whether to use that word or not, but here's what I mean by it. Let's, take, let's say you've taken something in your life. It may be something not good. It might be something great in your life, like family. And you've taken and you fashioned it into an idol, which you know what that means. That means you've made it all important in your life. It runs your life. You pursue that. You want its it to have pleasure in you or you'd have so much pleasure in it that it becomes the thing in your life. You fashion an idol out of it. Renouncing it doesn't mean, let's say if it's your family, I renounce my family. That's not what I mean by that. That's why it's not a, probably a good word. I just couldn't come up with a better one, but I wanted a strong one. I renounce it as an idol in my life. I state it. Maybe confess. I just wanted a stronger word, but I call it out for what it is in my life. And I either say to myself or think to myself, this is not the ultimate. This is not what ultimately will make me fulfilled. This is not of ultimate importance. If I lose this thing and I still have Jesus, I have enough. So I, I think that I, I may say it. Um, you say, well, I don't want to do that with some of the things. In my, I don't want to do that with my family, for example. And, and I don't want to love them less. I've talked about this before. This is not about loving your family less. God wants you to love your family more. But you love your family best when you love God most. And it's not fair to family. I mean, it's, it's not. It's a lot of pressure to be somebody's God. You know, children who have been idolized by their parents put over God. It's a terrible place to live at someone's idol. It's too much pressure. It's, it's not a loving thing to do to other people. It's going to be suffocating. It can be damaging to them. So we renounce the inordinate value that we put, or it's that we've made this into a God. We renounce that we've made this into a God. A second thing that we can do to, to kind of keep that passion alive is a knowledge And so, uh, knowledge is a theme that runs through here. We really didn't develop it, but it comes up in verse 2, 3, 5, 8, and 12. I think there's a question about that in your sermon application guide. But that means learning and study and knowing is a part of faith and about spiritual growth. The mind, the life of the mind is really important. Don't waste it. Don't waste it. Uh, Then effort. Uh, We need to get... Stop thinking that an abiding love for Jesus is just going to come naturally or that it's going to come supernaturally. So we just wait. You know, I'll love Jesus most when, I don't know, the Holy Spirit does something to me so that I love him most. Uh, That's like sitting in a sailboat without a motor and not hoisting the sails, going, I just want the, I want the power of the wind, but not putting up the sails. It takes effort. 
We cooperate with God. It's a certain kind of effort. But you cultivate love and devotion and deep gratitude, um, and that, that takes an enormous amount of effort. Um, the last one is practice. We have to take practices up in our Christian life. They're oftentimes called spiritual disciplines as well. Well, here's the thing. They're all relational practice. All the spiritual disciplines are relational practices, and we understand what that's like because we do that with anything that we love. If we love a sport, we take up certain practices. If we love a person, there's certain practices that go with that. You, you don't marry someone, live an independent life apart from that person, and just wonder... I don't think so. I don't think if you, you sit around wondering, going, why did I fall out of love? Because you're not doing the things that love, that cultivate love and that grow love. It's really that simple. And so the spiritual disciplines cultivate and grow love. They bond us to God. They fill us with ever-increasing awe and gratitude. Same with our relationship with Christ. Um, uh, so in our Story of God course, um, we, we have a thing that we call connect, deep, and impact that we talk about. These are all, these are like three categories of spiritual disciplines. We connect, we connect with the body of Christ through worship, fellowship, and stewardship. That's, there's built into the scriptures, built into spiritual growth are these disciplines. These aren't the only ones that are connect disciplines, but those are, those are some. We deepen our relationship with Christ kind of in our, in our personal life through Bible reflection and prayer and the learning that we receive as we surrender more and more of our life to Him. Um, and then we impact the world for Christ. And so we share our faith. We do acts of compassion and justice. We're concerned with missions to the whole world. And so these all take effort. Uh, they don't just happen. And they're given to us by God's grace so that we can, we can grow in a deeper love for God and for one another. Peter is essentially saying that if, that if what God has done for you matters to you, then commit, he says, commit to spiritual formation. And, and that formation is going to also have the value of confirming that you are indeed a Christian, that you belong to God. And so my question is, do you want it to matter to you? You go, well, I just, so many distractions and so many things, and sometimes it matters, sometimes it doesn't, or I don't remember the last time it mattered to me. If that's you, well, look at these practices. Um, renounce the things that you've put over God in your life, um, or renounce that you have put them, renounce them as idols in your life. Begin to put an ever-increasing effort into your relationship with Christ. Exercise, practice, train in the disciplines that God has graciously given us for our formation into His image bearers. Well, one of those practices that we do together uh, that Jesus gave us 
is communion. And so as we begin our third movement of our worship service, responding to God and his revelation in his word, we take the bread. Um, there's, a, there's a theme that Peter introduces in these verses that he's going to pick up on in the next section we're looking at next week. He talks about forgetting that you have been cleansed from your sins. Don't forget that you've been cleansed from your sins. Now, I don't, I don't know a Christian alive who forgets, forgets that. But we forget in the moment and in the moments of life. And so we need reminders. And he's going to, I mean, he, Peter's going to like say, Rip, I want to remind you, I want to remind you, I want to remind you, I want to remind you in the next section. This is one of those reminders. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread of Passover and he said to the disciples, this is my body broken to you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And he took the cup and he said, this is my blood which has been shed for the forgiveness of sins. Father, we thank you that you are a God who is constantly pursuing us, drawing us nearer to you. You're a God who calls. You're a God who chooses us. We thank you for that, Father. And I pray, Father, that we would grow in a desire to pursue you and that we would grow in that desire as we pursue you. Help us to draw nearer and nearer to you. Fill us with awe. Fill us with wonder for what you've done, that it would impact all of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name.